0: and Welcome to Policymakers with Greg Sindelar. I'm excited for you to join us in our inaugural show. We have a great guest with us here today. The purpose of this podcast is actually to kind of give a little background and and peek under the, the hood of what is actually happening here in Austin with the people that are actually leading the charge. And so we're blessed to have as our very first guest, my good friend, Dr. Tom Oliverson, who is uh, a member of the House of Representatives. He represents House District 130 in Northwest Houston, and he is Chairman of Insurance. And Dr. Oliverson, thank you for being here with us today and yeah. being our guinea pig for, as we get this yeah, going.
1: Very cool, glad to be the guinea pig, glad to be here with you, Greg, thanks for having me.
0: We'll see what kind of fun and what kind of challenges yeah. uh, we we face today. But you know, the purpose, you know, as I said in the opening, is really just to get to know you better, get sure. to understand what is important to your district mm-hmm. and, and what is happening here in Austin. I've, I found a lot that people don't understand even the process of, of legislation and, right. and making legislation. And so as a chairman, I thought you'd be a great guest to kind of take sure. people through that. So, but maybe like taking a step back, I would love to hear a little bit from you on, you know, kind of your background, your bio, uh, where you grew up and, and uh, kind of, you know, as I said, you're a doctor, you know, how you got into medicine and we'll kind of sure. go from there
1: yeah okay great so uh background wise so i was uh born uh, in minnesota outside the twin cities and i moved to the houston area when i was five so you're one of so the I like texans to say I, I didn't wasn't born here but i got here as quick as i could yeah, so i I'm think one five of those is too. pretty good <laughs> i was born in
0: nebraska so
1: i, there you I, go. There I there moved go. To, i was five as
0: well yeah so
1: i so grew up in kingwood which is a suburb on the northeast side of houston um, i went to sam houston state university and studied uh, Uh, biological sciences there, biology, and I went to Baylor College of Medicine and I got my MD there and then uh, did my residency in anesthesia and that's actually the only time I've been outside the state of Texas for longer than just a vacation Mm -hmm. or a meeting (laughs) since since I was very little. Yeah. Uh, I went to Washington University in St. Louis for three years and I remember very clearly I was, uh, I'd been married about a year. I met my wife at uh, med school she was working at the medical school and uh, so Jennifer and I had been married about a year we went to Missouri and um, well I remember the gas guy came to turn on the gas and he said so where are you from and we said well we're from Texas and his response was and there was snow on the ground it was really yucky and everything <laughs> Missouri doesn't do great with snow they get some yeah. snow but it's not like it's not like Iowa, Minnesota, yeah. Nebraska where they're used to the drifts yeah, that's right? right. And so the gas guy looks at my father-in-law. He says, "Texas, huh?" He says, "Well, welcome to Missouri. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "You mean Missouri?" And he's like, "Yeah."
0: Yeah, my family from Missouri called it Missouri. So. Missouri.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so we were happy to get back home. I remember the, when we moved back home. When you cross over the border um, in Texarkana and come to the fifty-nine, we. <laughs> we literally had to stop at the first Waterburger we came to, you know, <laughs> and uh, and get some to eat. Yeah, that's Cause, right. Because uh, in Missouri, it's Steak and Shake. Yeah, and, and no- White Castle and nothing. Neither of which is yeah. good. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Neither of which. That's is a good.
0: good like Texan meal. Like my my sister in law lives in Montana, and uh, she flew in actually today. And the first thing they did was went to Whataburger, Right. So yeah, that's, a, that's right. That's how you like kind of re-ingratiate yourself back to you, Texas. You need to do that. You yeah. do need
1: to do that. So um,
0: then what's your go-to meal at Whataburger?
1: I, I, like, the, um, <clears throat> I like the double there you go. Uh, with no tomatoes water size with a Coke Zero because I mean it's really important if you're gonna have a double cheeseburger and a large fries <laughs> yeah. that you save on calories that's somewhere. Exactly so right. that's where yeah. the Coke Zero yeah. comes that's in. That's just right? smart. That's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, I'm gonna eat all you know, this is like a twelve hundred calorie yeah. meal. It's like, yeah. you know, almost a whole daily allowance. Um, but i'm having a, a zero <laughs> calorie soda so it's okay yeah that's right well
0: <laughs> i used to always eat the patty melt and then they start putting the calories and i realized that a patty melt alone was like 1000 calories and i know now i just feel so guilty i can't do it
1: i'm like super unhappy that they got and i don't know if this is a statewide thing or if it's just the area where i live but they got rid of the jalapeno cheddar biscuit
0: did they really yeah. oh man and that, that
1: that is just that was like almost like a heretical act yeah. like i thought like you <laughs> You are no longer burger You don't have the jalapeno cheddar biscuit from my breakfast That sounds like a resolution sandwich. we need, right? I, bring I'm back. thinking they need to fix that. <laughs> that's right.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. So did you always think that you wanted to go into medicine, or how did you decide that, that's, that you wanted to be a doctor?
1: Yeah, I, I decided, um, actually it was one of those things where um, my parents kind of suggested to me at a pretty young age that, you know, doctors do well, you know, well-respected, got to be smart, work hard kind of, you know, introduced me to some folks in medical profession and uh, was obviously very impressed. And uh, so, yeah, I think by the time I was probably 14, 13, 14, I knew I wanted to be a doctor. Yeah. And I remember going to Baylor College of Medicine as a junior, senior, taking a field trip, going to Baylor College of Medicine because, you know, it's in Houston Mm -hmm. and so it's northeast Houston to central Houston, really taking a tour of their anatomical history museum and kind of getting, and I remember thinking to myself, if I can, if I can just go to school here someday, I will have really accomplished (laughs) something, you know. Uh, And so that was sort of my mission for four years at Sam Houston State was, uh, you know, I know it's a small state school, um, but I'm get, I'm going to Baylor. Yeah. And so I put my nose to the grindstone, I got uh, I finished with a 3.96 GPA cumulative after four years of college. Wow. I won't so tell you my like, GPA because you far surpassed me. I had maybe three Bs the entirety of my college wow. career. That's impressive. Maybe, maybe four. I can't remember. But That's yeah, impressive. it was a very small number.
0: I'm impressed. You know, I, I won't share my GPA, but my wife always tells me, she says, if we were dating in college, you would have had a much Higher GPA, and I was like, but then I'd be like a lawyer or something, and it wouldn't be as much fun as what I do now.
1: I I definitely think <laughs> there's some truth to that. I my my, uh, but we joke about this in my family that uh, you know. Uh, when, when you have a, a, a child that uh, doesn't pick up their room, uh, a male child, you're kind of like, you know what you need is a girlfriend. Yeah, that's um, right. Because you wouldn't act like this if somebody <laughs> was coming over. You know, this room yeah. would actually be picked up. Yeah, right?
0: that's right. Well, and when I travel, and like, oh, I'm not around my wife and kids. I don't even know what to do with my time. I'm like, this is, I was like, I, I'm so used to. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, the structure that all that provides. It's, it's yeah. I think it's good for yeah. men generally to kind of have that. Um, so you became a doctor, anesthesiologist, very successful, Tom Balleri. In fact, the first time we met was at the hospital. You're so kind mm-hmm. to, to to take some time uh, during a break and, and sit down with me and talk about TPF and priorities for you. Um, but what made you want to run for office? <laughs> you know, what, what yeah. as some people, I'm sure even people in your family might say like,
1: why are you crazy enough to want to do this? Well, and I think your, your choice of words is accurate. <laughs> um, I never wanted to have much to do with this. I'm not one of those guys and that uh, you know at a very young age said you know I'm going to be somebody someday and by definition that means I'm going to be an elected official you know and that's going to be my career. Um, Never wanted to be that guy. In fact actually kind of respectfully looked down on that a little bit sort of felt like somebody that wanted to be a career politician was somebody who really didn't approach public service from the public service standpoint, right? Yeah. Um, And and look, you know, I mean, uh, no disrespect, I have a a lot of friends and colleagues that I work with who have been in public policy their whole adult lives and they are very driven, very committed people. But I think when you're on the outside and Mm -hmm. you're just watching the five o'clock news and you're looking, you say, all I see is self-dealing, self-serving and corruption, Mm -hmm. right? And so um, I saw that a lot. Now, I You know, I'm a a voter, and an informed voter, and so, you know, I listen to talk radio, have for many, many years. Um, You know, Bill Bennett, listen to him pretty much every morning. Uh, So, was very informed. Uh, And so, people would say, you know, you seem like you understand policy really well. Have you ever thought about running for office? And I'm like, you know. don't insult me like that, you know, kind of <laughs> yeah. thing, right? And, and it's like, it's like, no, 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 you know, we need good people. So That's right. so God, you know, has, I always say that if, if you got, if I got everything in my life that I thought I needed or that I asked for, that I would have sold myself short, that God's plans for each of us are mm-hmm. infinitely better than the best thing we can imagine on ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so if we could, if we can just sort of let go and kind of you know, do the next right thing, but allow God to be in control, our lives are, are full of boundless opportunity. And yeah. I truly believe that, I have seen that in my own life. So, true God thing. So, um, my wife um, is, at this time we have very young children and she's doing a program at church called MOPS, Mothers of Preschoolers, mm-hmm. you may have heard of it. And so, she meets a, a young lady and they have, they kind of become friends. And it turns out that her parents um, <clears throat> are Bob and Liz McEwen. Oh. And I don't know if you know, I know Bob and Liz. Yeah, so yeah Bob's didn't, I had great. No, I know Liz I, too. Didn't know either yeah. of them, Yeah, right? Didn't know anything about them, um, but got to know their daughter, and so got to know them. And so I very clearly remember sort of, you know, talking policy and stuff because I like to talk policy. Yeah. And so one day on the 4th of July, and I'm sitting on the back porch with Liz McEwen, and she says to me, you need to run for office. And uh, you know, so we're watching my kids swim with her grandkids. It's 4th yeah. of July, family's having party, And she yeah. says, you need to run for office because this country needs you, needs you. And I said, yeah, yeah, right, why, why? <laughs> I mean, I hear this all the time, yeah. right, why? And she says, well, because you know, you have the right attitude, you have the right ethics, the right moral, v- character and values, you won't be corrupted, you would be doing this for the right reasons, and those are the people that we need. And I said, yeah, you know, here's the problem, Liz, I hear this all the time. But when I look at Austin and when I look at Washington, I don't see evidence of that in the people that, that are up here doing that. Mm-hmm. They seem to be, to me, to be serving themselves. Yeah. And she kind of leans over to me and kind of is like this, and she says, <laughs> That's because people like you won't stand up and do this job and sacrifice yep. and step out and do it. That's why we have the problem we have because if you won't do it, there are people who will gladly do it, but they won't do it for the same reasons that you will do it. Yeah, they'll do and it. For- we need people like you to do this because you're not doing this because you want to be somebody. You're already somebody. You yeah. already have a family. You already have a good job. You're doing fine. You would be sacrificing to do this. And those are the kind of public officials that we need. We need people who actually have an opportunity cost to serve. Yeah. Because number one, they won't serve forever, I think, you know, is probably the thing. But yeah. number two, for them, it has to be mission work. Yeah. It has to be. And that's how I look at public service. To me, public service is mission work. Yeah, because um, when you're
0: here in Austin, it's taking away from it, it takes your day away job, income, your family. Yeah. It
1: takes away family. It takes away a lot of things in order to come up here and serve. But it is my mission field. Um, as a Southern Baptist, we all have a mission field. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I believe my mission field is to come up here and serve God by serving the people of Texas.
0: So, so how do you, you know, obviously DC's got a swamp, Austin's got a swamp, all capitals have very swamps, so how do you maintain that mission while being in the midst of the swamp?
1: It is hard, um, and I will admit that uh, you are right in saying that if the devil has a stronghold in the state of Texas, it is Travis County. There's no question about that. All you have to do <coughs> is read the paper or hang around the Capitol crowd and hear what's actually going on around here, and you can see a lot of really good people who mm-hmm. make, you know not the best choices uh and and run into trouble along yeah. the way um, i think that comes from the fact that the the enemy and i'm going to get sort of super super biblical spiritual on you here but i but understand i i i live in a god centered universe my yep. world view is one where i believe that our like you're getting to my next question our That's battle perfect. is not you know against people and yeah. things, it's against elemental forces and principalities and powers, right? So that's how I look at the world and I believe that the issue is is that if the seed of power is here, what the forces of darkness need to do is when there are good people who serve, they don't have to kill you, they just have to damage you to the point to where you're not able to be that effective voice mm-hmm. and witness and mission-oriented person that you were. and so there are all these distractions that come up and all of these yep. sort of you know ugh, stuff that comes up. Yeah. Um, what helps me is that you know I try to I you know I, I will have dinner um, with colleagues and, and folks talk about policy I will go back to my apartment pretty much every night I'll call my family check in. Um, I have scripture verses posted around my office, just reminding me my favorite one, verse is Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that you're not taken captive by deceptive philosophies mm-hmm. that depend upon the elemental forces of this world rather than upon Christ. I love it. Um, and I keep that on my desk where only I can see it yeah. in a little frame next to some pictures. Yeah. Just to remind like me it. every yep. meeting I take, everything that I do up here, and then I keep another scripture verse on the door of my office as I walk out. Uh, And it's an admonishment from Deuteronomy uh, where basically, you know, God reminds, uh, is reminding everybody uh, that, you know, essentially, um, if you should ever forget the Lord your God and, you know, make false gods and worship them and bow down to them, I testify that that the Lord will destroy you just as he has destroyed nations before you that did the same, basically. I'm paraphrasing that one a little bit, but... But essentially, it's just this reminder to me that, you know, stay mission focused here while you're up here. You know, I'm not perfect. I'm not here to say (laughs) I don't think anyone is. Nope. Um, I've been known to use an occasional colorful metaphor. (laughs) Um, But I really, truly believe that public service should be about a higher mission than just coming up here to pass bills and be on TV and, you know, be on a talk show, and yeah. you know, look at me, look at what I can say, look at what I can do, I mean it, it, everything that I do in public policy is always about somebody other than me.
0: Yeah, I think that's really important, you know, in my personal life and I've said this to our staff here is, you know, it's it's God, family, TPPF and everything else is, is, is below that right and we have to be really careful not to get those priorities uh, mixed up, but it's really hard not to sometimes and you see things uh, jumping and you kind of have to like mm-hmm. have those reminders that kind of pull you back and say no Actually, this is actually more important or when we look at the work at TPPF or the w- the work you do I'm, It's not about your own vanity or you know look what I accomplished, right? But it's about what you're accomplishing for your constituents and the people of, of Texas, right? Like when we talk about education, like I tell our staff It's like what are we doing for the six million kids being educated in Texas? It's That's not right. about what what's TPPF's role in all of this? And 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 that's why I appreciate is that similar outlook that that you have as you kind of chair your committee and, and lead in the House because I, I think it's really easy in this world to kind of lose sight of that. So, so I think great. you can.
1: And and I I've you know Greg I've always tried to approach this from the idea that um, that number one I came up here to work not to have fun. Yeah. Um, I remember Ron Simmons told me one time. He said that there are only two types of lawmakers: there are workhorses and there are show ponies. He said, and you'll very clearly figure out which one you are. Yeah. And and I really took that to heart because I always wanted to be a workhorse. I yeah. never wanted to be a show pony. And and you will, if you talk to a number of the lawmakers up here on both sides of the aisle, but particularly on the Senate side, you'll find that that you know I'm one of those guys that I don't care whose name is on the bill at the end of the day. I just want the policy. And I'll tell people that all the time. Some of my greatest legislative accomplishments, bills that I wrote, things that I put my heart and soul into for the betterment of the people of this state don't have my name on them. Yep. And that's perfectly fine yeah. cuz it's not about me.
0: Yeah. There's millions of Texans that will never know your role in that. Yeah,
1: and yeah. I'm good with that, yeah. you know, because he knows. Yeah, that's right. Right? That's right. God knows what you what you sacrifice and God knows what you put into it. Yeah. So that's what really matters to me.
0: Absolutely. Well, and as we just discussed, obviously your faith is an important part of that. So you, you, you talked a little bit about how that guides guide you as a, as a person, but can you talk maybe a little bit more in depth about how that guides you as a legislator and the things you pursue, don't pursue, and when it comes to making policy?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that um, <coughs> there's probably, a, a you know, the, the answer to this could be really long, but I'll try to make it really brief. I think that... Um, one of my, the gifts that my wife gave me when I got elected was this amazing book by an author uh, by the name of Wayne Grudem. Okay. And it was called Politics According to the Bible. And he literally goes through, it it's literally like this thick. I mean, it looks like a dictionary, <laughs> but it, it's it's bigger than the, you know, it's like a, it's like, or or like a presentation, you mm-hmm. know, Bible, like, a, you know, kind of. Yeah. Because, I mean, it, it literally starts with, like, general principles and then taxation and stuff like that, and the unborn, and pretty easy stuff. We could say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it literally goes all the way through to where you're talking about stuff like farm aid and <laughs> you know subsidies for for corn yeah. and ethanol yeah. and you know, and he's literally like, you know, there's biblical principles behind, principles all, behind all that. Principles behind all of this, yeah. right? And so I, I really do uh, try to do that. I think sometimes it's hard. You mm-hmm. know, I think sometimes you. Um, Some of these issues are just not so easy, and I think that sometimes, um, and to TPPF's credit, I think you all do a really good job on this, but it is sometimes very difficult to disentangle doing good for vulnerable people with spending the taxpayer's dollar. And there are a lot of times where we get called upon as lawmakers to spend money for a great cause And it's like, eh, is that really a good investment you yeah. know, kind of thing? Eh, is that really government's role? I mean, yeah. is that personal responsibility? Is that, go- I don't know. Um, but we, there are some some things like that where you, you kind of struggle. So. Um, Absolutely. I always tell people it's kind of a, a sliding scale, right? Like our
0: role at TPF and a lot of what you're talking about is trying to figure out what is the role of government in each of these things. Right. And, you know, unless you're an anarchist or a communist, right, like you're somewhere in between, and depending yeah. on the issue, it can slide back and forth. And and uh, we're, we're trying to figure out what is the right role uh, for government, which we believe is typically, usually limited. But right. there is still a role for government, which I think sometimes we forget.
1: And I think for me, you know, the example I like to use is that um, <clears throat> even football has rules. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, and, it, and and at the end of the day, in the marketplace, and whatever sector it is, for the most part, you know, I, th- I think about how competition is beneficial. And, and to me, it's sort of like watching a football game. Yeah. You know, hopefully, nine times out of 10, the team that is more talented and the team that executes better is the team that's going to win, mm-hmm. right? And, um, and, but we always have rules. We always have referees enforcing the rules. Um, and if we didn't, Number one, I think there'd be a lot more people getting hurt <laughs> and careers would be a lot shorter in the yeah. NFL, but but again, you know, this is sort of this human nature to not necessarily follow the rules if the rules aren't being enforced. <laughs> so I, I do love the fact, that in fact, we were talking about this right before we we started recording this that, you know, there's, there's a balance to be struck between <clears throat> sort of the libertarian ideal of low regulation, low taxes, and then <clears throat> Sorry, there are sectors in our economy and in the way that our economy is structured where unregulated capitalism is also not not a constructive force for good, yeah. right? Yeah. Just letting anyone do anything to anyone as long as they have the might and the right yeah. and the resources is also not a good thing. Yeah. So that's that balance. I think we have to strike, and uh,
0: yeah, society trying to figure out, like, well, you know, as the market recalibrates, how much are we okay with, you know, that you know that kind of a.
1: But I think getting yeah. back to your original question, I think biblical principles would say that number one, you know, there is absolute right and there is absolute wrong. God is in control; we are not. Um, and I think that you know, if if I'm sort of following generally uh, you know good biblical principles of faith family um there certainly is i think there's a lot of individual responsibility in the mm-hmm. bible one of the things that i love about the the new testament and also the old testament is that uh, you know god does talk about taxation mm-hmm. and paying taxes yep. to government and being a good and you know the apostle paul talks about being a good citizen yeah um, but god also doesn't say that it is government's responsibility to provide welfare. Oh. God says that it is our responsibility to care for those who are less fortunate. And I think sometimes, you know, when we think about the heavy hand of government and this this push and pull between government responsibility and caring for people and being caring and stuff like that, I sometimes wonder like how much are we actually taking away from churches, synagogues, mosques, people of faith? Mm-hmm from all walks of life and all different faith traditions to be able to come together and say, you know what? our God commands us to take care yeah. of people that are in need of, of help. Not Uncle Sam, it's not Uncle Sam's job and also by the way, like charity is not giving money to Uncle Sam through taxes and letting Uncle Sam take care of everybody. Charity is you see somebody in need of help, you help them out yourself or you help them out through your church or your you know, a volunteer organization or something like that. I think that's the direction that has made our country so successful historically is that sense of volunteerism. Um, Alexei de Tocqueville talks about that in in his book, right, where he talks about in Democracy in America, he talks about the spirit of volunteerism is a fairly unique phenomenon in American democracy and it's literally the secret sauce that makes American democracy work is that people volunteer of themselves to help those in need, right?
0: Well, and Texas was forged that way, right? Exactly. By, by a call to help to, all, to to the world and all Americans exactly. by Colonel Travis and several volunteers from Tennessee and other parts of the country came and, and really is what made Texas, Texas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you think, right. Well, speaking of Texas, I want to switch gears a little bit and, and get into y- your district. Obviously, you know, HD 130 is, is kind of the northwest portion of Harris County. It's, it's, it's got Tomball and, and mm-hmm. Cypress and, and things like that. You know, obviously a lot of good high school football happening up there, but, but yes. what are the things that people wouldn't know about your district that they should know? And then the personal question I have because I traveled around to a lot of these districts, where's the one place that we should eat when we're there?
1: Okay. So I would say, and I'm probably going to make a lot of people mad, you know, because I I think there's a (laughs) lot. We'll edit that out. There's obviously a lot of good places (laughs) to eat. But I would point out that one of the most um, celebrated and sort of eclectic restaurants in my district is in the city of Tomball. And it's called the Tejas Chocolate Factory. Okay. Uh, And they are on uh, Texas Monthly's top 50 best barbecue joints in the state of Texas. And, and and he's <laughs> we get some fans here <laughs> in the studio with us. They're like they're giving me signs. It down. Yeah, that's okay. like I can see the drool Sorry <laughs> yeah, <that's> before. Right. <laughs> so they have a pastrami beef rib oh, that is man. available on Thursdays. It okay. is literally one of the most amazing <laughs> creations that you've ever had. Pastrami right? beef rib. Okay. And then, in addition to that, they have those little, um, those little fancy chocolates. I yeah. always forget what they're called, but they're not macaroons, mm-hmm. but the, you know, the little fancy uh, chocolates oh. with the hollow centers yeah. and flavorings. Since um. so they make those yeah. in house. They actually like grind their own chocolate and all that. stuff. So it's like a two for one. You can totally pig out on, on barbecue, and if that doesn't put you into a meat coma. Then you can progress to a chocolate coma very quickly, and it's it's a cute little restaurant. Yeah. It's right in the middle of downtown. Downtown Tomball will kind of remind you a little bit of downtown Fredericksburg, or um, or Green. I mean, yeah. it's a it's definitely a destination town. We have festivals almost every yeah. weekend, um, live music. I mean, there's always something going on in Tomball. It's a it's a really neat town. Yeah, only wife... incorporated area in my district. <laughs> my wife's
0: cousin actually lives in Tomball, and she's huge fan of of that area and I'm pretty sure she's talked about this restaurant. It was called, uh, what was it called it's The again? Tejas
1: oh, Chocolate Factory. Okay. Yeah. We're writing
0: that down. Sam, you're writing that down? Yeah. Okay. But they right. have
1: barbecue too. Okay. Their barbecue is pretty yeah. freaking amazing. Cardiologists
0: cardiologist probably wouldn't recommend
1: it, but it, you know. I mean, they're kind of on the <laughs> fence about it, right? Because I have some cardiologists like, oh, you know, a little bit of, you know, a little bit of fat is okay, you know, <laughs> yeah. right? It's just, yeah, yeah. So, I don't, I don't know. Now, the thing that you probably don't know about my district that I think is fascinating is that we are mostly a rooftop district Mm -hmm. but the largest single-floor factory space in the entirety of North America is in my district in the on the other side of the district between Waller and Cypress and Hockley. Okay, yeah. And it is Daikin Industries and so Daikin Industries that factory floor makes every residential and light industrial air conditioner sold from the entirety of Canada all the way down through Mexico under the Daikin, Amana, or Goodman name. If, oh, it's, wow. if, it, if you have it, it was made in my district, and this factory is huge. It is yeah. enormous. It is, it is so large that it was one of these where I tried to take like a panoramic picture of it when I took a tour of it because um, it opened, you know, a few years before I got into office. Not yeah. many. So it was still pretty new when I came into office in 2017. And and it's an amazing place, uh, employs thousands and thousands of employees, uh, engineers. They actually do product design there um, in addition to stuff and they, they have all of these training programs. It turns out that there's a special technique that's not really welding, it's called brazing. Okay. Where you're actually connecting copper pipe together and it's different, it's similar principle, but it's different kind of metallurgy. And according to them, there's only about 70% of the population that given the right training can ever learn to do this right. Really? Yeah. That's fascinating. And it has to be done by hand, the machines can't do it. And this is how they bring together all those little coiled pipes that you see in the air conditioner. And so Daikin has this thing and cause the Daikin company itself is Japanese, obviously Goodman and Amanda are American yeah. but they, they have sort of the parent company. So they train all these folks in dojos right? and they call them dojos and so they it. have all these training things. So if you go through you get a chance to kind of learn a little all bit about engineering it york they bring, ninjas in, in, they bring in high school students from Waller ISD and, and Fair and Tomball and they teach them these techniques and then they're graduating and they've got a skill set, they're certified brazier. Okay. You know that they know how to braise, and so that's a that is a literally like a a job that um, it's a marketable skill. You know, a lot of times uh, we talk about skills and competencies yeah. are more important than degrees, right? Yeah, so absolutely. there's a competency and a skill that you now have that is marketable wherever you go for the rest of your life. There are various manufacturing processes that need certified people that are skilled in brazing. Interesting,
0: man. Yeah. I learn something new every yeah. day, this is this yeah. fa- fantastic. Um, now I feel bad that I just replaced my HVAC and I got a train and I didn't get a good You or something. did not get a, sorry well, train about
1: that. may train actually does have a presence in North Texas so. okay
0: all right so still a, Texas made right you know uh, during the state of the Union uh, the president said that uh, President Biden said that the supply chain should start in America and that was about the only thing he said I agreed with um, but although I do think that it should start in Texas and so it I'm should glad to see and so yeah. I would
1: tell you to that point the other thing that I really love about Daikin is that With the exception of the electric motors that they use, the entirety of that is essentially the supply chain is sourced and actually assembled there. That's awesome. So this isn't one of these things where they're bringing in like, you know, they've got 20 million different manufacturing plants all around the world and they're bringing in all these parts and this really complex supply chain. They're making it there.
0: That's a fantastic. That's a
1: Texas success story. It is, it's a great company. We're very honored to have them in our district. Very good. Well, and speaking of your district,
0: obviously you you said you're mostly residential, but you do have this big, huge manufacturer. What are the issues that when you're back home that you hear most regularly as most important to your constituents?
1: Several. Um, We are in Harris County. So as you know, Harris County, as of late, has had quite a few issues. Um, related to defunding the police, related to election integrity, (laughs) related to redistricting county commissioners in a way that (laughs) forces them to not win, Mm -hmm. um, and various other shenanigans I would just say that are going on Uh, and if you went and looked at the elections committee in either the House or Senate I'm pretty sure that you would find about 40 percent of the bills that are filed are specific to problems that are unique to Harris County. Yeah. It's almost like sometimes... Senator Betancourt is you know, constantly
0: flagging this for and us. And <laughs> Senator Bencourt
1: and I work hand in hand on a lot of these issues as he does with other members in my delegation. Yeah. And uh, and it's a struggle, man. I mean it um you know we <clears throat> we are a uh, we are a very diverse county. Um, and I, I would say if you just looked at the registrations of voters and statistics we're probably Majority Democrat, but mm-hmm. still a large, large minority of of, of conservative voters. Mm-hmm. And my area is a very conservative area. Um, usually, I've been challenged by a Democrat a couple of times since I've been elected. And I usually beat him seventy percent to thirty percent. So right, I mean, it, right. it ain't close. I think that's what your last one was. I love yeah. Looking it ain't it close, yeah. um, but. Uh, but there's struggles there. Uh, One of the challenges that we're dealing with right now that Senator Huffman and I are working on together is that we live in an unincorporated area and so the vast majority of law enforcement for us are our Precinct 4 and Precinct 5 constables, uh, Mark Herman and Ted Heap. And because they are elected officials representing an area but subject to the whims and the wills of County Commissioner's Court, which is majority Democrat, they are often finding themselves sort of in the crosshairs Um, and the problem is for us as citizens out there is that these are our local law enforcement officials but you could go to other parts of the county where they're not there so it it doesn't hurt southeast Houston to punish the constable defund them or you know take away their open positions you know just generally screw with them it doesn't hurt People in the majority of the county to do that, but yeah. it really hurts my area. Yeah, and so we spend a fair amount of time trying very hard to protect these folks uh, because they're we depend on them. We yeah. would not have law enforcement. And I know there are places. There are probably listeners that are listening to this. are like constables. I mean, those guys just you know they just serve notices and stuff. And yes, that is true. There are places you can go in Texas where where a constable is not necessarily a primary. Law enforcement officer. But in my area, they bust human trafficking, yep. they bust narcotics rings, they do traffic enforcement, they're investigating murders. Um they do it all. Uh, and so they are primary for us. And so that's been a real struggle. Um other than that, I would say, obviously, property tax has never not been a top three issue <laughs> for my constituents. We live in an area where, you know, property continues to grow in appraised value because it's a growing area, it's developing. Uh, We have very good quality public school districts in my area. Uh, We also have good private schools and opportunities for school choice and things like that. So there's always a, it's hard to find a lot of people in my district that don't have strong feelings about school choice one way or another. <laughs> Seems uh, everyone does. And I does. hear about yeah, that yeah, a yeah. lot, right? We I have, have some the,
0: strong feelings around here, too. I, so. have <laughs> the, uh, I
1: represent a large chunk of the third largest school district in the entirety of the state, mm-hmm. uh, Sci-Fair ISD. And I would tell you I'm very proud of them. They are a very, very good school district. Yep. Um, very good opportunities for students I think are very good they're not perfect nobody is Mm -hmm. you know there's things they could do better um there's things that we're going to try to pass legislation on um that we think we can help them do better you know and I'm talking about stuff like the reader act yeah that representative patterson has um you know things like that 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 can help them function better but they're a good school district and people do move to our community because we have good schools. Yeah, that's why you people, know. yeah. Tomball, same way. Tomball is, uh, ISD, Waller ISD, top-rated schools. And yeah. as you point out, great athletics, great fine arts, great opportunities. You can get about, I think it's close to 200, maybe even more than 200 different career and technical certifications by the time you graduate from high school incredible so those are those yeah. are some things right and yeah. so there's that is a big issue in our area it's yeah. a source of tension things like that <laughs> um, it's always fun to sort so how of... do you
0: handle that tension right and how do you, you not that you need to tell us like what your decision is on anything right here but you know you so much of being a lawmaker is mm-hmm. trying to bring people together and and create some uh cohesion amongst your constituents to say you know this because you're representing them right so how do you kind of handle that tension and figure out what is the right thing to do I'm just curious like that's like a process question
1: for me yeah I mean that's a really it's really nuanced Greg and I think the issue that people don't realize is that on something like that you know like we will probably have a budget amendment tomorrow that will say um We, if you're voting for the amendment that basically says that forever and all time under any and all circumstances we absolutely reject the idea of, of public money to be used for private education. And I won't support that. Mm-hmm. I won't. I, I, and I've told my superintendent I'm like look there's no way that you can sit here and tell me that there are not situations where a child wouldn't be better off having a, a scholarship to go somewhere else than the school that they're zoned to. We know for a fact that's happening. We know it's happening in Harold Dutton's district right now. Not too far from where I am. Yeah. Um, But that doesn't mean that all public education is a failure either. And so I think, I think there's sort of this, um, there's sort of this middle ground where you kind of have to realize that there are places where choice may be the difference between a child having a future and a child having their ch- future stolen away from a fa- by a failed school. Yeah, I th- and I think that's a huge thing. Now, I also think that there are areas where, you know, I mean, okay, yeah, you can go somewhere else, but the reality is, is that everybody that wants to do that is essentially already doing that, um, yeah. and the and the and the public options are really, really, really good. Yeah. So most people don't do that, yeah. right? Like ninety percent are going to continue to use the public school system because it's an A-rated, you know, yeah. fairly very high-rated school. So, whatever. And I and I think sometimes um, I feel like the folks in public education, if they are doing a really good job, and my schools are doing a really good job, I feel like they kind of take it personally. Yeah, like it's about them. And so I feel like sometimes the conversation that we have to have about this is sort of like, look, you know, at the end of the day. This isn't about you, you're doing fine, in mm-hmm. fact you're doing exceptionally well. Mm-hmm. And there are kids that are graduating here that have tremendous opportunity. But understand that your story is not the story of every public school in the state of Texas. Yeah. There are places not too far from here where a child can only dream of going to a high school like what's available here, Yeah. but I right think, now they can't, right? yeah. and they that, don't have a choice.
0: And that's such a really good point. And, you know, it, I would even add to that and say even in the best school, and I, you know, I went to public schools growing up, went to A&M, so I've only gone to public schools, I would say. And um, I had a really, really good education for my public school. So I always tell people, you know, school choice to me is not about actually any sort of hit at, at public education, but what it is is trying to understand that, uh, the the structure of public education and the way yeah. it's set up now might not be right for every kid. And even in the best school, I saw this in my own school, which was highly rated at one time, rated in one of the top 100 high schools in the whole country. And I'm very grateful that I went there. Um, but there were even kids there that, that struggled and, mm-hmm. and it wasn't the right environment for them. And so to me, the reason that we want to open up options uh, for all these kids is because we want to realize the potential of every
1: kid. To, I think that's right. yeah. I, I do um yeah I di- so I didn't file my we talked about libertarian stuff I didn't file my crazy libertarian bill <laughs> on education but really in a perfect world the bill I'd like to have a vote on uh, actually I, I don't even know if we need a vote on I just want a hearing on it cuz I want to hear what people have to say yeah. cuz I want to get to the I want to get to some real honesty yeah on all sides on this conversation is that I think we should have an approach to school choice that basically says We repeal all accountability requirements of any kind, with the exception that we will have a single exit exam given during the fall of the 12th grade year. And the results of that will be made publicly available on a state-maintained website to all parents in a searchable database. And then the money follows the child. Yeah. Because I want to know, for our friends in public education, I want to know how much they really hate accountability with a because I feel like there's the, sometimes we're talking past each other yeah. on the issue of school choice and accountability where it's like well we don't want the private schools to have state money because they don't have accountability and by the way we hate accountability <laughs> we and so it, it should go away <laughs> for us and <laughs> yeah, I'm like it. fine let's <laughs> take it all away yeah that's right but the deal is is that the new accountability is the parents vote with their feet yeah and I think, and, and so they get to go wherever the high-performing schools are until they're maxed to the gills capacity with kiddos yeah. um, who want to take advantage of those highly successful educational opportunities. And those of you that, you know, for lack of a better term, are just not really very good at this, yeah, you need to you need to get better.
0: Yeah, and if you can have that paradigm shift where where parents actually have the leverage in this, then I think you will start seeing better results. That's why in states I've had this you kind of see kind of all boats rising. And I agree with that. And I
1: think that that consumer behavior is really missing in the school debate. Yeah. And and I do think that there's sort of, sort of in the, in the traditional public education establishment, there's sort of this entitlement mentality of this is our swimming pool. We own it and no one else is allowed in it because we are the only ones who are constitutionally, Mm -hmm. you know, authorized to do this and no one else is. You know, it's sort of like this. Like it's a private country club and you're not a member so you can't play golf here kind of thing, right? It's really kind of to me, it feels very much like that.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. Well, and speaking of controversial or <laughs> hot button. Yeah, I was going to say, I didn't <laughs> file my
1: bill because.
0: <laughs> because you were working on banning gender modification and in children, uh, yeah. uh, and children uh, kids under 18. And so can you talk a little bit about what your legislation does and kind of where you. And, and, sure. and I think, you know, there's a lot of criticism there where, where from, from folks who oppose this to say, well, if we don't do this, we are going to be harming kids because we're not affirming their gender uh, identity. And you know, there's lots of thoughts on that and there's lots of science on that, but I think the approach that you've taken where you really tried to follow Mm -hmm. the science of what is good and what isn't good for kids um, is an important part of this conversation. So I'd love for you to kind of lay that out a little bit. yeah. And let's talk about that. Let's
1: do that. So um, first of all, let me begin by saying that we are gonna pass this bill this session. Mm And I believe that the big difference maker this session was the involvement engagement of TPPF on this issue and the fact that Andrew Brown uh, has literally been an indip- indispensable member. He's almost like my fifth uh, <laughs> staffer, right? I mean, it's like like is we're he here to is help <laughs> literally the guy who has put so much of this together yeah. and and uh, and having, because because I was a co-laborer with Matt Krauss last session yeah. on this, and I want to give props to Matt for thirteen ninety nine last session because uh, representative Krauss, you know he he was sort of like John the Baptist a little bit, yeah, you know he right. he was he was out there he saw this he knew this needed to be taken care of, yeah, um, but I don't think society had really caught up to where he was he was he was uh, I guess. Uh, I'm trying to think of the right word, but he he sort of, he was forward-thinking. Yeah, that's right. right? Um, What we know now is that having seen country after country in Europe that has far more experience in gender modification for children than we do, we have come full circle, they have at least, and recognized that um, this was a big experiment over the last decade and plus. Uh, where they were giving puberty blockers and ultimately cross-sex hormones to children uh, in an in an attempt to deal with gender dysphoria. And Greg, you got to understand, like, gender dysphoria is a mental health condition. Mm-hmm. It's not a physical health condition. There's no physical state of gender dysphoria. Yeah. there it is a it is a a mental health issue. Um, and and I would point out that we should have known better as healthcare because medicine has a pretty poor track record of trying to cure mental health ailments by causing, you know, physical changes. You know, you you don't regulate schizophrenia by addressing someone's diabetes, right? Um, And if you go back far enough in medicine, you, you would know that at one point, the number one treatment for schizophrenia was surgical and that was, lobotomizing people. So we don't have a good track record on this to begin with and it turns out that the literature when you go back and you look at it and you do the actual tough work of analyzing carefully the studies that are out there the quality of them, the size of them, the methodological failures Mm -hmm. and the limitations that you realize that these researchers who've been pushing these treatments on kids way 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 overplayed their hand in terms of what the literature says. Yeah. The biggest, bestest, baddest study they've got that w- has been used uh, countless times to prove that that this is a great treatment for gender dysphoria because it lowers the risk of suicide never actually says that it lowers the risk of suicide. Mm-hmm. What it says is that it makes kids feel better, less suicidal but it has zero statistical impact on the rate of actual self-harm. Yeah. So the whole premise for which we were doing this to resolve it, you know, because here's the thing. People can live with gender dysphoria. People can learn to cope with gender dysphoria. The only reason to treat gender dysphoria is if you feel like the presence of gender dysphoria is literally gonna lead to harm. Yeah. That supposition was false all along.
0: Yeah, and so what do you think about uh, one of the interesting arguments that I, I've read a little bit about um, is uh, that, you know, on the L and the G side of this equation, or L-L-G-B, the B side of this equation, that we're taking maybe effeminate uh, men and convincing their women are uh, butch women and convincing them they are men and that they have an issue mm. when really what they are is, you know, maybe they're homosexual or something like that. Um, And so I've seen that actually as an argument from the left against doing this, Um, but I'm curious if that came up at all in the hearings and and, and kind of what was the response to
1: that? Yeah, I mean, it was eye-opening to me. I never really thought I would start down this pathway um, working on this issue and sort of get to a place where it crossed my mind that it may be that some of the treatments that we're pushing on these children for what is perceived as gender dysphoria might actually be harming them in terms of you know that, that there's um uh, there's this concept I think uh, we talk about authentic self right like, yeah. like can I grow up to be who I was always meant to be yeah. right whatever that is yeah Um, And so there is this notion that perhaps um, there's a, in fact there is a study that says that a significant percentage of young people who experience pre-adolescent gender dysphoria, that's gender dysphoria that starts before puberty, 60 to 90 percent of them depending on which study you're looking at, if you give them mental health support, the gender dysphoria either resolves by the end of the second decade of life or they realize that they're same sex attracted. Yeah. So I mean I think that is an issue. And we heard that from psychologists and we heard that from detransitioners and we heard that from other folks that was like, you know, I thought I wanted to be trans, but the reality is is that I was gay. Yeah. And now you've taken away my ability to be that authentic self. Yeah. Um I never really I didn't appreciate that coming into this, that that you're you know, you talk about vulnerable yeah. youth, right? Yeah. Um the other thing that's fascinating to me is that there is a tremendous overlap in the transgender youth population of comorbid psychiatric disease. Interesting. The rates of autism mm-hmm. in kids who identify as trans is like 40% higher yeah. than the regular population. Yeah. The incidence of pre-existing anxiety, depression, thoughts of self-harm, you know, all of these things very high. Now the advocate doctors believe um, in this theory. I always mess this up, but there's this idea that you, you know, essentially the cause of all the mental health issues is undiagnosed gender dysphoria, which is not supported anywhere in the world other than the United States. We're at WPATH and the gender affirming model which we have here is literally the only place in the world where they believe in that stuff.
0: Yeah. Uh, It's like you go looking for it and like wish it into happening.
1: Right, yeah. And so, you know, we see all these countries pushing back now and saying, "Eh," you know, we're starting to see kids get into their 20s and 30s and you know, not only did this not work out for them and not solve all their problems and ended up not being what they want to be, but they can't go back. Yeah. Remember when we had this bill last session, it was 1399, I clearly remember being on the public health committee and having a doctor from UT Southwestern, taxpayer funded school, by the way, <laughs> come and tell us that everything they were doing was totally reversible. And serious. when I pressed her on that, I said, even surgery, and she said, well, we don't do surgery on kids. I said, really? So, what about mastectomies on girls? Removing the breasts? Yeah. Well, we do that, but that's reversible, she said. Go back and watch the testimony. I mean, it just Reversible, because you can get an implant. I, guess. I said, you know what? Well, I've been an anesthesiologist for 20 years. I've seen a lot of mastectomies. I've never, ever, ever seen a reversible mastectomy. Yeah. You can do a reconstruction, but it will never function yeah. the same. Yeah, you'll know, really nurse. Those the girls child. that go through a mastectomy that are lied to and told that it's reversible, they have lost the ability to breastfeed for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Their anatomy will never be normal. And even if they were to be reconstructed, it will either be with a foreign body implanted into their body, or they will have to take some of their stomach muscles and tissues and have a full on, you know, big reconstruction and move stuff up, which is like a Fifteen-hour operation. Oh my goodness! Which um, insurance won't pay for? Yeah,
0: because yeah, it's all yeah. So let's talk process a little bit. So yep. I think one of the things that sometimes uh, our, our, our viewers don't know, and we we spend a lot of time talking to them about where in the process things are. Yeah. So where in the process is this bill, and what's next, Good and question. how do you see this getting towards ul- ultimately passing? Which you said uh, you believe it will.
1: So we are three quarters of the way done, I would say. Um, Every bill is required to have a hearing in both the House and the Senate. So we had two bills. We have 1686 on the House side, which is my bill, and my companion, Senator Campbell, uh, who has just been an amazing co-laborer on this. I can't say enough good things about my doctor colleague, friend, Senator Campbell. My state senator. She's been phenomenal. Uh, Um, Her bill, Senate Bill 14, has had a hearing, and it's also had a Hearing and has been voted out of the Senate on the floor. So, the only thing we have left to do at this point is for me to pick up Senate Bill 14, move it out of committee, and it doesn't have to have a hearing because the House companion's already been heard, and bring that to the House floor. And once that Senate Bill 14 passes the House floor, as long as the Senate agrees with the changes that we that, you know, that we need to make, because there's a few little things that still have to be dealt with, yeah, then it will go straight to the governor's desk. That's fantastic. Yeah. So, so we're real close. So we're
0: here. We're shooting this on April 5th. So roughly, when would you expect, you know, some of that to happen? Or may, maybe the timelines aren't really set yet.
1: They're not set. Yeah, um, I'm pushing for sooner rather than later. Um, my ambitious goal, but again I'm an ambitious guy, I, <laughs> you know, former, uh, former uh, summa cum laude in college, <laughs> hardworking right. guy, <laughs> yeah. right? I'd like to be done with this honor about, you know, maybe around April 30th, okay. s- you know, first week in May, something like that.
0: All right, end of the month. So Good I'd day. like
1: to see, I don't know that that'll happen. There's a lot of things. I think one of the things that people don't realize on the House side is that a lot of the big fights on contentious policy, happen on the House side. Mm-hmm. It's just the nature of the process. Our process is not set up in a way that we can move bills quickly. Yeah. Um, well, and that we was be my questions. We have that extra questioned. step of the calendars committee. Yes. The calendars committee in the Senate is essentially <laughs> the Lieutenant Governor, yeah, right? Yeah, they don't really have and rules so it's over like, there, you know? <laughs> and so, you know, he can move the good policy and he can be, you know, whereas yeah. we have that extra step. And so, and then, so what you have to start thinking about, and I think this is what a lot of people miss, is that there are only so many calendars to mm-hmm. hear however many bills we're going to pass for the whole session. Yeah. And there, and there were always less calendars in the House than there were you know potentially in the Senate. It's just the way it works out. We We are limited constitutionally in our ability to take up measures in the first 60 days yep. of session. And so if you think about it every priority bill, whether it's school choice, whether it's gender modification, whether it's the Reader Act getting rid of those bad, dirty, pornographic books in our school libraries. um, Almost all of those really important bills, that's a multi-hour floor debate and quite frankly a bit of a fight, Yeah. right? The minority party who's not going to be in favor of this policy is going to come you know, uh, is going to unload both barrels, right? They're going to try to kill it with points of order, and if they're unsuccessful, they'll go through a series of amendments. Yep. And I've seen, because I carried a bill (laughs) uh, against defunding the police last time (laughs) uh, with Senator Huffman, Senate Bill 23, and over two days, second reading, third reading, I had to fight off almost 30 hostile amendments. Yep. And I'm telling you, like one amendment is a 15 to 20 minute yep. conversation. So you can see how you have 30 amendments at you know 20, 30 minutes apiece. You chew up a lot of clock really fast. Yeah. Well, and so you think about it, like so, how many really contentious fights can, you can have? we schedule around all the other non-contentious, really important stuff that needs to be done? This week we're doing the budget. Yeah. So like tomorrow we will be on the floor starting at 8:30 or 9 I'm sorry 9 a.m. and we probably won't get off the floor until Friday morning. Yeah. Not any other bills getting heard that day, right? Yep. So
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, but you know budget night is one of the most interesting nights I it think is. In, It is. and it and uh you know cuz there's all these amendments and there's all these articles. Um you know what what do you expect uh, you know obviously by the time this is out people will know what happens but um, what, what are you kind of expecting to see um, as we go through Holy Thursday into Good Friday fight, uh, fighting on the budget? I
1: think what you're going to see is a handful of very contentious amendments. Uh, and truthfully, there are a few of them that will be fighting for for dollars. Mm-hmm. But respectfully, a lot of the what we see of the really contentious sort of quote floor fights on budget night are really more about scoring political points and sort of getting people on record and you know sort of nah! kind yeah. of stuff like like there'll be an amendment tomorrow um, that that my colleague uh, Abel Herrero is going to offer that would prohibit ever using state funds for private education for yeah. school choice right it's sort of the school choice amendment right yeah. that's not actually going to have any real consequences for the budget yeah but it's one of those things where people on both sides are really spun up about that. Like That's an important amendment. I expect yeah. that's a minimum of an hour debate. Yeah. Just on that just amendment. One amendment. There'll be yeah. you know, lots Many of some.
0: amendments to the amendment. Yeah, <laughs> now I will
1: say uh, to his credit that my colleague and close friend and fellow doctor, Greg Bonin, who I sit directly behind on the House floor. So I'm just saying like, You have a neurosurgeon and an anesthesiologist sitting right next to each other.
0: That's the side of the floor you want to be on in case of emergency. So if you were to fall
1: from the gallery onto the floor, you would want to land right there. Okay. Because you've got a neurosurgeon and an anesthesiologist right there to take care of you. But Dr. Bonin is a master. This will Mm -hmm. be his second time as the chief budget writer in the house. He is a master of sort of minimizing the amount of non-controversial sort of like everybody's got their pet project, right? Yeah. Let's move all that to Article Eleven, which is sort of the maybe column, and then we will work this out over a protracted period of time through uh, conversations in um, in what they where they where they're basically getting together with their colleagues on the Senate side, and they're sort of working out the differences. They call it conference committee, yeah. and it's a really really efficient way of sort of minimizing background sort of la 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 kind of stuff where it's like you know okay I've got this you know important um, park in my district and I want that to be funded and so I have an amendment that does that and I want to talk on it and you know all this kind of stuff. He gets all that stuff kind of moved into article 11 and it's really brilliant because it keeps things moving. Yeah. And it keeps us focused on the really contentious things that we really need to have a vote on. Yeah. I think and so it's great. And so you may see, we may be done by midnight. Yeah. Some people think we might be done before midnight. I don't yeah. know. I've, heard, I've gone I've till 4 in the morning before, you know. Those are the ones not I while remember. while Dr. Bonin yeah. was in charge. Yeah, I've heard from, you know, it could
0: still be light outside to it could be uh, Friday. So, And we'll And see. I would
1: say that I think the other piece of that is just that um, I think we're very blessed to have S- Senator Huffman. Mm-hmm. and and greg Bonin, uh, you know representative Bonin is the two chairs of the budget writing process because they're both conservative you know prudent uh, tax conscious you know let's get the you know they're they are they are the kind that will squeeze the juice out of the lemon so to <laughs> yeah, speak right. right i mean right. they're they are conservative budget writers yeah. and so they did extremely well as you probably know with the last one yep and all the things we were able to achieve. Um, it's hard to be the guy that says no, <laughs> especially when there's a lot of money to go around like there is this time, but you know, Dr. Bonin is just one he of those calm cool yeah. characters yeah. and he can just kind of deliver the bad news. You know, it's like, yeah. I'm sorry, but you it's know, good bedside manner, this right? is not yeah, getting yeah. funded. Yeah. You know, you, you want a water park for your school district, that is not uh, happening, yeah. right?
0: What what is a good, you know, when we've gone by his office, they're appreciative because we're not there asking for money. So yeah, it's very different than uh, when the budget is tight. Right. Um, But I think we've seen over the last decade, you know, through the good conservative fiscal policy of the state that this this is there's a reason why we have a thirty three billion dollar surplus. Right. And there's a lot of people now that have a lot of ideas for how to spend that money. But one of the things you talked about has always been top issues, property taxes. I always tell people, I was like, it's amazing. I'm on the radio yep. a lot, and I always say, it was, we have both chambers arguing over whose property tax relief is better. It's better. And I was like, that that's crazy? great for Texans I that know. that's happening. Um, so, uh, you know, in fact, I was seeing the speaker talking about HB2 today, and uh, I'm sure that will be passed out. Who knows? Maybe by the time this is out, it'll be passed out. But what do you think? Uh, uh, is, uh, do you have any thoughts on what ultimately will happen with uh, property tax relief this, this session? I really don't. Yeah.
1: Um, you know, <laughs> I um, I had my own proposal. Yes. My proposal is is was birthed here at TPPF, yes. courtesy of our our mutual friend Vance Ginn. Yeah. And I'm a strong believer in the taking of the surplus revenue and lowering the M and O. Yeah. Um, that apparently is just not the direction either chamber wants to go. Yeah. Um, they each have their own ideas. I've talked to folks on both sides about. Why, you know, obviously, Senator Betancourt is my state senator. Yeah. Um, And, of course, uh, Chairman Meyer is my good friend. Um, And uh, so I've heard from both sides. They're both very convinced that even though these are very different strategies, that they have the right strategy for Texas. So, you know, this is what we do. We get together and we debate ideas. And we keep debating until the cream rises to the top, right? So I guess we got a little less than 60 days to figure out if it's going to be SB or HB, and you know <laughs> yeah. how that's going to go, how that, how that works out. But the good news is that there should be
0: significant relief, and I think both chambers, to to what you're what you were just talking about, it, they do believe in compression. That's one thing that right. there will be significant um, compression, and uh, you know, I, I, while it won't happen uh, this session, it doesn't look like. Um, I would say I'm curious if you agree. It feels like we are on the path to eventually eliminating M and O here in this state.
1: I'd like to think so. Yeah. I really do feel, I know that that's a vision that Dr. Bonin shares, that, yeah. you know, he'd like to see continued compression. Um, and, and while we can, I think, you know, one of the things that I, I get told a lot is just like, you know, whatever it is that we do, we want it to be sustainable. Like yeah. We don't want to make promises we can't keep. Yeah. And I think that's fair and reasonable and prudent, right? I mean, I think we we don't want to, from our own checking accounts, be writing more checks than we have money in the bank, or than we think we're likely to have in the bank a month from now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so we shouldn't ask our state to overextend themselves and do crazy things either. I I don't think that we would do that. Um, but again, um, I think it's a really amazingly positive and but almost kind of like you said, kind of crazy to think about <laughs> yeah. that. You have two chambers I've been chambers, around long enough from like this and, and they have completely different approaches to this but they're both arguing like our way is better. Yeah, that's um, right. I would be remiss if I didn't say as a member of the house that uh, I am <laughs> for the house side. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's right. <laughs> house way is better. Well, and you I know. think and that's what we talk about I was like let's let the competition figure it out and I was yes. like, you know, like maybe the number goes up and you you know, we love compression here and we understand the benefits of uh, of what HB2 and the Senate package is doing. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, hopefully a lot of good things happen I for Texans. So, so uh, you've been so generous with your time, sure. so I don't want to uh, take too much more. But I did want to ask you uh, a, a couple of last questions, uh, one policy specific question. So as chair of insurance, obviously you've been uh, you have some legislation really pushing back on ESG and DEI stuff in the insurance uh, industry because um, it is affecting some of our uh, uh folks here and in, in industries here in Texas. Mm-hmm. Could
1: you kind of talk a little bit about what that legislation does and why yeah. it's important? Yeah, I can actually, and I've got some good news and some some interesting news and some good news to okay. report. But so, um, you know, for those, for I think everybody may know, but but ESG is environmental, social, and governance. And Thank it, you for and saying that. We're
0: always so bad about acronyms. Yeah, yes. and so
1: I, I think, and so people focus on the environment part, but need to understand that there's also a social and governance to that. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of this idea that every corporation should be a good you know, citizen, if you will, and embrace certain progressive ideals of you know caring for the environment, empowering the workers to the maximum extent possible, and really sort of embracing a true diversity, you know uh, equity mindset, right? Mm-hmm. Almost like a DeI mindset. The, and so that's what ESG does, mm-hmm. and uh, and so it's been it's been kind of creeping into it's obviously significantly taken over the financial services sector, mm-hmm. but it's been slowly creeping into the uh, insurance sector. Interestingly enough, through a very strange mechanism, and that is that one of the largest and most important areas of insurance markets is reinsurance. Reinsurance is I like to say is insurance insurance. It's the insurance for the insurers. So, you know, when the when the policy claims end up being more than they have cash on hand because, you know, they charge certain amount of premiums and they end up having to pay more claims, Mm -hmm. they all have a policy that sits over top of that where there's another insurance company that's taken their risk and bundled it together with insurance risk of a similar nature, literally from around the world. And the masters of doing this, and the biggest companies that do this, are all in Europe, which, as you know, is climate crazy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like wacky. There's the reason it's the Paris Climate wacky, Accord, right? right. Wacky. Um, and I would point out that the one of the largest reinsurers is actually based in Switzerland, which is also where a lot of these crazy yes climate conferences and summits and stuff like that yeah are happening. You know, and um, So we're starting to see a creep in the insurance market. Now insurance has this one feature that's really interesting and that is that it is the only sector of our economy where federalism reigns supreme. Every sector of our economy other than insurance, federal law supersedes state law in most respects. But in insurance, it's actually the flipped opposite. Hmm. Federal law regulates very little of the insurance market and states reign supreme, which is why you have insurance policies in one state that are not exactly the same in another state. And it's also why policies are cheaper in Texas than they are in California. Yeah, Because in California, they regulate the snot out of their insurance companies to do all kinds of really weird stuff. Mm-hmm. And we try to be more respectful, you know, of the free market here yeah. in Texas. We have a very healthy insurance market. So my bill basically prohibits ESG and insurance. That's really what it does. And, uh, and, it, and it's timely because states are moving in opposite directions the insurance industry would love it if the state of texas would do nothing (laughs) and the reason is because unfortunately the state of california is going to do something and so rather than create an unlevel playing field for them they're like we'll just make everybody do california kind of stuff right i mean it's kind of like like they don't really like to admit that but but it's really kind of true i mean it's one of these things where from their perspective they're trying to do business in all 50 states they don't want 50 different Yep. regulation schemes on this. They want something where they can navigate all 50 states. So, our legislation, uh, in addition to banning ESG, the other most important piece of it, it is respectful of the Jeffersonian Federalist principles of the state-based system of insurance regulation. And it says, if you're doing business in the state of Texas, you must do it this way. You can't use ESG. You can't use disparate impact. You, yeah. get a, you Everything has to be based on the science and the statistics. But on the other hand, I'm not gonna tell you how to do business in California. And I think that's really important from a conservative principle mindset Mm -hmm. because again, I have control over my insurance market here in the state as a share of insurance. And that's, and so I don't want the state of California telling, trying to tell Texas companies how to do business in Texas. And I would reciprocally say, I'm not gonna tell them how to do business there. This is really catching on. There are a lot of states around the country that are following our lead on mm-hmm. this, and they're looking to us to provide leadership. Um, I serve as the president-elect of the National Council of Insurance Legislators. So it's a 50-state organization, state lawmakers, chairman of insurance from across the country. States are looking to what what is this bill that he has going to do because we'd like to run with that. Uh, We've been in contact with folks in Oklahoma, North Dakota, and a lot of other places where they're like, hey, whatever you do, we're going to do too. Yeah. Um, Chubb, I don't know if you saw, recently announced that they were going to insist that, you know, their policyholder commercial companies, that they reduce their carbon emissions or they can't renew their policy and all that kind of stuff. At the same time that's going on, I just got noticed today that there's sort of this – climate accords for insurance companies okay you know like we're gonna do business you know according to the (laughs) usg well two of the largest european reinsurers that do a lot of business in texas just pulled out of that group today that's great news very good so they sent that to me and they were like hey you're making a difference people are paying attention texas is the eighth largest insurance market i think in the world yeah So it's a big market and so we do have that market share and we shouldn't be afraid to use it in a way that protects our economy and our citizens from sort of these crazy woke policies that really aren't rooted in anything statistically valid or even that makes any financial sense.
0: Yeah, well and I think that's a good example of why Texas matters more than Honestly, just a lot of other states, yeah. even Florida, who we have this
1: healthy competition on, and that's always good. But let me tell you, Florida's insurance market is a mess. <laughs> All right, so so <laughs> the, so I know we're always had this. Yeah, is it is it Abbott doing it right? Is it DeSantis? Is it Texas? Is it Florida? <laughs> Texas is doing this one you, right. Like, <laughs> I don't want what they have, and I will go to any lengths not to get it. In terms of their their property and casualty marketplace, is a mess. Good. Okay. Uh, and ours is healthy and it's growing. All
0: right, well, let's keep Texas Texan on, uh, especially on that one. All right, last uh, couple questions. So you've been legislator now for a while. Um, tell me the thing you're most proud of in your legislative uh, career so far to date.
1: I think the biggest achievement that we were able to get, uh, and again, this is one of those bills that doesn't have my name on it, even though I wrote large sections of it, is a bill that Senator Kelly Hancock and I did in 2019 that ended the practice of surprise medical billing Mm-hmm. for the entirety of the fully insured market in our state. And it was such a good model. It was so fair and balanced and it had so many real market principles injected into it that Kevin Brady, Congressman Brady, took it to Washington in the midst of their you know total meltdown like stalemate, standstill, how are we going to solve this problem? And he took it to Chairman Neal from Massachusetts, a Democrat, and he's like this is what my home state did and like this is you gotta love this right yeah. and so neil looked at it and he's like this is brilliant son of a gun <laughs> Republicans so the did no it. surprises act was literally birthed out of sort of like our senate bill 1264 senator hancock's yeah. senate bill 1264. we did that here and we did it so well that the federal government basically took our idea and and then i would like to say that i don't know that they Kept it clean and kind of messed it up, so <laughs> said, but, but, uh, but that's more of an impleta- implementation issue. So I was very proud of that. The other one that I'm really proud of is um, one of the other organizations I'm part of is I was, I'm one of the founding members and helped us to create an organization called the National Association of Christian Lawmakers. Mm-hmm. It's a 50-state organization of men and women of faith serving as state lawmakers, federal lawmakers, and local elected officials really trying to get together and work on the faith family policy issues that, you know, you can't go to ALEC or NCSL and talk about <clears throat> the Heartbeat Act, mm-hmm. right? Nobody wants to talk about that. Yeah. But all of these policy areas, every policy area, no matter what it is, needs some forum for people to get together and discuss best practices. So I helped found this organization. Um, the, the main guy is a great friend of mine, a uh, former Senator Raper, Jason Rapert from Arkansas. Um, just a tremendous Christian, tremendous guy. But I was at a meeting with him two years ago and there was a bill they were talking about that he had passed in Arkansas that I was just like, we're doing this. Mm-hmm. And it, it's really simple, but basically what it says is if a school district is presented with a framed copy of the national motto, they have to put it up in a prominent location in the school, as long as it's donated free of charge, mm-hmm. and it's framed, and it has nothing else in it. It can't have other symbols or, you know, other messages. It's got to be in English. Just it's a national a, motto. Literally just says, in God we trust. Yeah. And then the American flag and the Texas flag. And so we passed that bill, um, and because of some, you know, there's always dynamics, right? <laughs> and so uh, it ended up passing as a Senate bill, Senator Hughes's bill. And we passed that bill, and it sat dormant for almost a year. And Senator Hughes and I were like, yeah, you know, um, not really. And then all of a sudden, last summer, Mm -hmm. everybody realized, like, oh, my goodness, the legislature says that if we donate a framed (laughs) copy of the national motto, it has to be put up in the public school. Yeah. This is amazing. (laughs) And so literally everybody starts donating these things. And it literally like in 72 hours, I was interviewed by all of these national media sources. And so was Senator Hughes. And I remember calling him and I was like, I was like, brother, I was like, I have never felt in my life like something that I did that I could literally feel like God was directly using me to do something great for the kingdom. Yeah. Right. And he was just like, hey man, brother, I've been thinking the same <laughs> thing, you know, and it was just like. Yeah. It Isn't was perfect. So perfect it was just perception. a really great, uh, it was a really fun bill. and I think the most fun thing about it is that we did it, we got it done, and then finally the people of Texas caught on to it about a year after we'd done it. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it becomes a national phenomenon. Yeah. And I had people you know, I- as far away as Florida commenting and saying, well, you know, here's what we're going to do and all this kind of stuff.
0: I love it. That's the way it should work. Well, so last question, you know, when when I've talked with the Speaker, the Lieutenant Governor, the Governor, they've all talked about this session as being maybe perhaps the yeah. most consequential that Texas has had in a generation. You know, obviously, we have this big budget surplus. There's lots of, you know, I think marquee issues in front of the legislature. And I think, you uh, from the governor on down, everyone kind of sees this as an opportunity to really set up Texas to be a prosperous for all Texans uh, for another generation and, and set the standard mm-hmm. uh, for what state governance should be doing and how uh, people can can come here and it's the best place to live, raise a family, run a business, et cetera. So when signing die hits on May 29th, you know, what are some of the things, we've talked about a lot of them, but what are some of the things that you're really hoping to see done and maybe uh, constituents your constituents, our constituents across the state, um, should expect that the legislature will have accomplished.
1: So I think we're gonna have a healthy property tax cut. And again, we've talked about that. I don't know mm-hmm. what that's gonna look like, but um, but I think it's gonna happen. But when people feel. Yeah, to see, I think yeah. it'll be something. And, and look, I wanna say like that is the thing that I think is one of the things that is up for debate that is really fueling this conversation between the House and the Senate is nobody wants to do something that's not really going to be noticed. Mm-hmm. If we have all this money available and we plan to give it back, we want it to make a big difference. We want people to feel it yeah. and to know that we heard you. You said property tax relief, we deliver. It's tangible, you know that it was a substantial benefit. Yeah. So I think that's one of the things. Um, obviously, I'm very partial to the ending the childhood uh, gender modification treatments. Um, so I believe Senate Bill 14 will be law by the mm-hmm. end of this session. I think there are gonna be some voter integrity measures. Yeah. It's interesting, this time there's not like one big voter integrity bill, yeah. um, but I think there are a lot of really good bills that are out there. I've got one that basically allows the Secretary of State to fire an election administrator that's doing their job incompetently. Yeah. Um, if you followed Harris County elections <laughs> for the last <laughs> several cycles, you know that's a problem. Unfortunately,
0: you guys are setting the standard for Exactly, we are there, yeah. the
1: standard of incompetence. <laughs> yeah. um, there's another one that ends countywide polling, um, and ranked choice voting is another yep. one. So, I mean, all these little things, that kind of stuff. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I, we talked about the Reader Act. I think that's really po- pow- powerful. There's one that uh, has not gotten a whole lot of attention, but I want to I want to give a shout out to because I think it's really critical, and that is that uh, Chairman Burroughs and. Creighton have a this is my favorite bill. Regulatory Consistency Act bill, which I think is really, really important. There are small jurisdictions. You know, we talk about local control, right? Okay, to be clear, there is no such thing as local control in the state of Texas that doesn't exist at the pleasure of the state. Exactly. There are no local entities, whether it be a commissioner's court or city council or a MUD, that haven't been authorized and created by state law. Yeah. So we create them, and we absolutely can tell them what to do. Yeah, That is in our purview. So this bill basically says no more silly, stupid ordinances. You know, like I think one city in Texas, I forget where, is trying to make every small business be totally carbon neutral by the end of this decade. And they predict that that may put as much as like 70% of small businesses in that town completely out of business. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, and yeah. then I heard that there's an ordinance somewhere where they want to prohibit veterinarians from declawing cats. Okay. You know, I mean, and it's just, or, or like banning meat products. Yeah. Or, I mean, you know, it's just, so there, so the Regulatory Consistency Act, I think, is important. Now, it doesn't impact any of the normal pre-prescribed functions that cities would normally be in, like zoning, planning, platting, yeah. um, code enforcement, you know, fire marshal stuff prescribed, burn, all that stuff is not impacted, right? Yeah. But the silly stuff has got to stop, right? Yeah. All this crazy woke stuff. Um, that's an important bill. Uh, so I've got two colleagues. I think the last one I'll leave you with, and, and there's a lot, right? You yeah. said, I mean, there's a lot. We could talk for another hour about <laughs> stuff that should pass. Um, but one that I want to give attention to is so uh, Representative David Cook mm-hmm. and uh, Chairman Leach have a combination of bills that, taken together really concretely address the issue of district attorneys being unwilling to enforce the law because they think certain categories of crime that people just shouldn't be prosecuted. Yeah. Right? Exactly. And so they yeah. issue these public statements of like, well I will no longer prosecute property crime. Period. Yeah. man Well this would create a process where if they said that and they did that they would be removed from office.
0: Yeah, which, you know,
1: it, everything we, that. we
0: build on is based on the rule of yeah. law. And when you're just ignoring that, then it's important to do something about and, that. And, it,
1: and isn't it crazy that we live in a day and age where we have to pass state laws to remind local elected officials that they were elected to do a job? To do their And jobs. that they should do a job? <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, it's like, oh, I've yep. got one that basically creates liability for judges. Last session, we passed a law that says you can't. Let somebody who's charged with a violent felony out on a personal recognizance bond. If you are charged with murder, yep. you should not be roaming the streets, right? Judges still do it. Yeah. Yeah. So I filed a bill to kind of put some consequences on that there. So, I mean, I can't believe we have to do that, but we yeah. do, right? Yeah. It's just like, it's almost like a breakdown of society. Like, people are like, yeah, I know I was elected to do a job, but I just really don't I feel don't like do doing that. That. I don't think that's the right thing I'm to do. I'm just not well, going to do it. You know? You're
0: elected to uphold the law, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah that's right. Exactly. Well, Dr. Oliverson, I appreciate you so Thank much you, being here today. This was a lot of fun, and this was a, a good inaugural uh, yeah. uh, one, so I appreciate you taking it sure. easy on me. Um, for those of you watching, I hope you enjoyed this. You got to know Dr. Oliverson better, a little bit more about his district. We now know where to eat in Tomball, Texas, yes, so you do. I can't wait to go there. I'll be in Houston uh, in a couple of days, so I'll have to go check that out. Good, so good. thank you for joining Policymakers with me, Greg Sindelar, and hopeful, hopefully we'll see you again uh, in another episode soon. Thank you.